Hey, welcome to Objection to the Radio. Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. Welcome to Objection to the Rule, live from Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, I'm here in Violet Barron in the studio with uh, Ori Gibbons by phone. Are you there, Ori? I'm here, Violet. Great. And we've got a special guest, Mohammed Atia from the Street Vendor Project here with us in the studio. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for being here. Um, so uh, we've got uh, we've got a lineup for you today. We're going to speak with uh, Mohammed about the project for a little bit, and then we've got uh, some um, news. We're going to hear about uh, um, Mick Mulvaney replacing John Kelly as chief of staff, an end to the U.S. support for uh, Saudi attacks on Yemen, and uh, potential rate hikes for the MTA. Um, so, how's everyone doing today? Doing pretty good, Violet. Doing pretty good, Violet. It's been a really interesting news week, I think. Yeah, it sure has. It's there's been a lot going on uh, with and beyond the U.S. Um, and uh, a lot of shakeups uh, as we're um, getting into the 2020 election year. Um, so, uh, first of all. Um, Let's get right into it with uh, Mohammed of the Street Vendor Project. Um, Mohammed, can you tell us a little bit about the project, uh, what it's all about? Uh, sure. So first, I'm Mohammed Atiyah. I am a co-director on the Street Vendor Project, which is one project in Urban Justice Center. And uh, what the project does, we uh, we organize street vendors and we provide legal services. Mm. So that's what we do. So we have a legal team who actually provide legal services for street vendors when they get harassed by the police officers sometimes or they face a lot of tickets and summonses. So we have the legal team who takes care of that. We also provide legal services and small business services to help them develop their business. And uh, what the big part that we are working on all the time is organizing the, the street vendors in our city and trying to give them voice and mm. the city government and try to change the rules and regulations and try to uh, push legislations forward uh, to benefit street vendors. Mm. And how common is that, that a street vendor will get harassed by the police or by NYC? Well, it's it's very hard to tell. It's very common, and I believe it's kind of like everyday thing. So mm-hmm. it depends on from one location to another. So in some neighborhoods, we see a lot of enforcement happening every day, around the clock, and some other places, things are a lot better. Right, right. Yeah, I, I feel like street vendors are some people we see and we interact with all the time in New York City, you know, whether you're buying a dog or, um, you know, halal food on the street or something else, or you're a purse or a handbag, you know, it's it's almost all happening. That's part of the beat of the city. But maybe we think less often about what these people have to go through in order to keep selling in uh, on the street. Yeah, indeed. It's a very challenging job and very challenging business. I can tell you about it. So uh, you've seen the street vendors in New York City. They sell food, they sell products, they sell merchandise, they sell books, they sell artwork, they sell all, all the great stuff that you can imagine and even stuff that you cannot imagine, <laughs> a lot of food that you don't even know that it exists and you can find it in, in the street and you can find street vendors provide it. Uh, but of course, not a lot of people know the challenges that they face. Right. Uh, we only deal with vendors when we want to buy something and that's it. But of course, uh, a lot of vendors face a lot of challenges, starting with 
dealing with the government, dealing with the system, the permitting process and the licensing process, it is very, very hard and very complicated and so outdated. Right. Like I can tell you about food vendors, for example. So for the food vendors, they need a food vendor license for the vendor themselves. And they also need a permit from the city for the cart or the truck they are selling from. And that is very challenging. Maybe a lot of people don't even know that, that the city capped this number since 1983. Hmm. So that is really ridiculous. It is so outdated system that street vendors have to deal with. And of course, for uh, like a vendor like myself, I was a vendor for nine years, by hmm. the way. And when I had to start my own business, I could not get a permit from the city. So what I had to do, what I had to go through is dealing with an underground market mm-hmm. to rent a permit and paid a lot of money. I've paid $23,000 wow. to rent a permit that costs somebody $200 to renew every two years. So right. that person pays the city $200 and I paid them $23,000 and even more. So you can imagine how crazy the system is and instead of uh, if I cannot even afford this, uh, the other option is to just sell without a permit. And that's very risky. Right. So it's very risky. I can I can deal with a lot of bad enforcement. I can just get arrested or get my cart and my stuff taken. And best case scenario, I'll just get a $1,000 ticket. Right. And it's more pressure on you, I'm sure, to make back that 23000 plus any more in profit as you're working. Of course, because otherwise I'm not going to be able to renew again. So I have to come up with that bag of cash every two years. Otherwise, I'm simply out of business. Wow. And uh, can you tell us a little bit, just give us an idea, if if you are going through the permit system, if you go through New York City's permit system, what does that look like? Maybe for someone who's, uh, who's new to New York, who's just coming in and wants to sell. Okay, so now it depends on what they're going to sell. So uh, I think I have to clarify that. So we always say that vendors can be uh, split into like three categories. Mm -hmm. So if they want to sell First Amendment products, which is artwork, books, newspaper, pictures, all of that stuff, they don't need any license or permits for it. They only need a table and they need for themselves a sales tax ID which is very really easy to get. So the second category will be the general vendors who sell merchandise, stuff like sweaters, t-shirts, hats, sunglasses, all of that is considered merchandise. Mm-hmm. And they need to have a general vend- vending license, which is capped, I think, years ago, maybe in the 80s or so. And there are only about 800 of them. And only disabled veterans can get them. Mm-hmm. So not anybody can get these licenses. So the third kind, which is the most complicated, is the food. So you have to deal with the health department. And the health department have two requirements, as I mentioned before. So the food vendor license, there is no problem. Anybody can get it. But what about the permit? Without a permit, the the food vendor license doesn't mean anything. Mm. I cannot just sell out of a shopping cart and say, hey, I have a food vendor license. I am selling legally. No, I still need a permit for that unit I'm selling from. And to deal with the city in the permitting process... It's a dead end. There is no way to go. When you go to the consumer affairs and say, hey, I want to apply for a permit, they will say there is no such a thing. You cannot apply for it. The permit is capped. And uh, that happened with me back in 2008 when I just came here. And I believe I got the license around 2009 and I was trying to even put my name on the waiting list. And I even failed because the waiting list was closed. Wow. So I was like, 
okay, is there any hope that one day I can get a permit? And they said, no, there is no hope. That's so classic for New York. You know, it's something everyone needs all the time. And it's capped in the 80s, yep. 1983. Yep. Um, so, so you mentioned a couple of times now that um, you sort of got into this from a personal uh, experience. You started out uh, as a food vendor yourself in New York. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So when, when I started working as a vendor, I was working for people. So I work in a couple places with different folks. And I moved from one place to another uh, till I got into the business. I saved some money. And then my best friend from Egypt came and we kind of put the money together and we started our own small business. And uh, around 2012, I heard about the project. Mm. And of course, as a vendor, I didn't really uh, pay a lot of attention. I didn't look for the project. I didn't go online and say, hey, a street vendors organization and stuff like right. that. I never did that. Unionize. Yeah, I didn't even yeah. I didn't even know that the project exists because, you know, like given the fact that I'm coming from a different background and had different mm. experiences about, vend- about vending and vendors and how the government treat vendors. So that was like a bit different from here. So when I heard about the project and then I heard... Uh, the story that how the project actually helped a lot of vendors in the mm-hmm. street uh, where, where they face challenges with the security building sometimes and a business owners sometimes who cannot abuse their power and their connection mm-hmm. with the police enforcement and they call just NYPD and say, hey, kick these guys out of here. We don't want to see them there. So when I heard about these stories, I got really invested and I was like, wow, that's that's amazing. Mm-hmm. So this group is actually helping vendors to get their rights. They're not doing anything illegal, but like vendors here have rights and this group is helping them to get this rights. So that's that's very fantastic. So I joined the project back in 2012 and I learned about it. I learned what they are doing and I was super, super excited. At that time, we had a big campaign to lower the fines on the vendors. Mm-hmm. So like back then, before 2012, the tickets could, could go up to like $1,000. Fines and now after we won the campaign back in 2012 or 13, I believe uh, the highest fine now is like five hundred dollars. Oh, that's great. Which is which is great. So I joined. I got involved in 2014. I joined the leadership board, which is a group of vendors who are actually leaders of the project, who lead and direct the project mm-hmm. and come up with the campaigns and all the work. And uh, recently, this year, in March, I joined the staff as a co-director. Oh, that's great. So you, you're all the way in now. You started from, you know, the position of the vendor, and now you're sort of helping yep. vendors. Now I'm all the way in. Yeah, that's great. Um, and was the project itself started by a group of vendors, or was it sort of a, diff- a project by someone else? Well, so the project is started by Sean Bazinski, who is a lawyer, mm-hmm. and he was a part-time vendor mm-hmm. as he was going to college. And he started it in 2001. And I believe the trigger of the project back then was what happened late in the 90s. So when Mayor Giuliani was trying to close a lot of streets, and he already did, he closed a lot of streets for vending in Manhattan and all over the city. And uh, part of the Clean Up New York exactly. project. Exactly. Here you go. You still remember that? Yeah. yeah. That's that's that was the project, and he wanted to just close all the city. He doesn't need. He he didn't want to see any like vendors anywhere. Uh, and yeah, it was a really tough time. And I believe 
uh, one big thing happened that all the vendors gathered together and they had like a really big action. I was not there, sadly, to join them, but like I heard about it and I heard it was historic action. They met at Union Square and they walked all the way to Broadway. You can imagine thousands of vendors were over there protesting the mayor and what he was doing. And I think a couple of years after uh, Sean Bazinski started the project with, of course, a bunch of vendors who started very, very small, like a very small office trying to organize the vendors. And they did great. It started from... Uh, one member, and today we have about 2,300 members. Right. Wow, that's great. That is So you really are making some influence. You have some influence. You're making a difference among the vendors. Uh, sure, of course. We are making uh, big differences on uh, like in a small scale, on a big scale also. So like the individuals who need assistance, who actually get tickets or get harassed by uh, some police officers or so, we just go there and help them. And that means a lot to them. But also the big picture our campaigns that benefit thousands and thousands of people. Right. And uh, something we were talking about just before the show started was, um, I, I believe it's a project that Street Vendor Project is working on now, which involves the vacancies. There's a lot of, you walk down the street in New York and you know everything is so expensive, everything is so competitive, you know. You should be seeing every street front full and very busy, right? But you don't actually. And some of the biggest streets on Fifth Avenue, maybe Broadway, they're empty, and uh, and that's something that Street Vendor is uh, involved with now. Yeah, right? of course we are. We are involved with a group called USBNYC, and we are partners with them on this campaign to end the commercial vacancy. That's small business USB. Yeah, that's United for Small Businesses mm-hmm. in New York City, and uh, we are part of the small businesses because. Street vendors are the ultimate version of small businesses and a lot of street vendors we talk to, whether they sell merchandise or they sell food, uh, the ultimate goal is to go in a small business and to have a store and to have a roof uh, on the top of your head. Of course, everyone will love that. And we believe it is insane to see the greed of some landlords who actually raise the rents like super high that nobody even the big corporate cannot afford it so we see a lot of a lot of vacancies it's bad for their bottom line too right yes and it it doesn't make any sense for us and we we really hope that the city will help us in this and try to put pressure on these landlords and try to get some benefits out of this a lot of jobs could have been created if every vacant store is actually occupied by small business but right. it's 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 really hard. It's challenging. Yeah, yeah. Is that uh, are there other projects that SVP is working on now specifically? Well, now we are working on our biggest campaign, which is uh, lift the cap. So lift the cap uh, meant to address the cap on the permits and licenses. Mm-hmm. So as I mentioned before, that the food per, uh, the food vending permits are capped since the 80s. And we started this campaign back in 2014. So we were trying to ask the city to like lift the cap. Everybody should be selling legally and everybody should be able to go and get their permits and work in a legal way because a lot of folks are forced to deal with the underground market and some other folks are actually forced to sell without a permit which right. is very very challenging also you can you can imagine how hard and risky it is so uh, we simply asked to lift the cap and then the they came up after a lot of negotiations and a lot of meetings that they just cannot lift it it is very hard to just 
have unlimited number of vendors and they cannot control it. And we still don't know why they cannot do this. Uh, with, all, with all due respect to them, we have seen right. a couple of weeks ago what happened in L.A., uh, it's a permitting process, legalizing all the street vending activities, no limits, no cap. So I think New York should take a look over there. And uh, what well, we were told that it will make a lot of sense if we increase the number gradually. Mm-hmm. And then we were like, okay, fine, that makes a lot of sense. So we didn't have good luck last year. Uh, last year in December, we had a really good legislation, very comprehensive bill that uh, was addressing a lot of issues regarding uh, the enforcement. A lot of people had concerns about vending activity uh, in kind of like illegal ways and they were complaining about enforcement and then the bill included enforcement and included uh, creation of an advisory board to just uh, like uh, kind of supervise what's happening and the street vending and send recommendations to the city along with more permits gradually over 10 years and then at the last minute the bill died and Mm. of course uh, we learned that the main reason for it was the mayor who actually said he cannot support this bill and he still uh, want to have some conversations and we still, we, we still not clear what exactly the mayor wants. So uh, right now what we are working on to try to push the same legislation again and uh, this year, September, we just had a similar bill reintroduced. Mm. So it was reintroduced by Council Member Shin, who is a great supporter. Mm. And so far, we have 24 council members who actually signed them. I would love to name them all, but like, it's <laughs> a lot. Right. I want to thank all of them. And yeah, we, we just had a lot of meetings with many council members who actually support our effort and support this bill. And they, they think that now is the right time to move this forward. Right. We cannot wait anymore. So we just hope that the mayor also will pay attention to this and actually try to help us to get this bill passed because we really need it. Yeah, it seems like a no-brainer for New York. You know, it's there's no reason why people shouldn't be allowed to legitimately work in the city. There's certainly demand and there's need. Yep. It, you wonder what... It's mysterious, right, that uh, Mayor de Blasio... Uh, let it go like what is stopping him it's it's very mysterious we asked him many times in a very direct way and like mayor what is it what would you like to see in the bill so he can support it and the mayor is always asking like hey we want to make sure to protect the brick and mortar we want to make sure to protect small businesses which like when you give it a thought what that even means like street vendors do not compete with the brick and mortar. That's a very different experience. They sell different products for different prices. Uh, they have different customers. Like right. whoever is buying a $5 halal food platter yeah. in the street, they're not going to buy like $15 or $20 platter in some other restaurants. Sure. So it's a very different experience, but we still don't know what the mayor actually wants. We were trying to get that answer from him clear, but we didn't. We didn't succeed. Right. Well, we hope you. Yeah, we hope you get further this time. Uh, I wanted to open it up to Ori to see if Ori has any questions. I think that's really interesting to hear the struggles that this community um, of business owners has had with you know city government. It kind of parallels to some of the things with the taxi industry. Um, I'm curious to know what other reforms you would like to see, kind of what were some of the things that were included in that bill that you were speaking of um, that would really benefit, you know, street vendors across the city? 
Well, so uh, I believe that the main thing now with the permits, because, you know, what we are dealing with now is so inefficient. So that's uh, our primary uh, concern. But of course, what else can be addressed is to review a lot of, vend a lot of vendors' regulations uh, that actually hasn't been updated since the 70s. So I can tell you that a lot of streets in New York City and a lot of rules and restrictions were put in place back in the 70s and the 80s that doesn't make any sense today. So for example, I can give you a list of streets that is restricted for vending because of congestion. And when you walk over there, there is absolutely no congestion. Some streets are closed for like 16 hours every day. So can you imagine that there's this block is actually 16 hours, super busy, that cannot have vending activity on it? Right. It doesn't really make any sense. Along with a lot of other restrictions that street vendors have to deal with. Stuff like uh, vendors have to be 20 feet away from all entrances, like building entrances and store entrances. Maybe back in the 70s, that made sense since there was not as many stores and as many entrances as so you can actually find a lot of legal spots but today if you walk down manhattan and you just see a lot of stores and a lot of restaurants a lot of places they have entrances everywhere so even when the street is not restricted and it's, that's a legal spot you cannot actually find a legal spot that comply with this specific right. rule so a lot of rules and regulations we believe don't make sense and makes vending impossible so we just try to change that and make make vending a lot easier. I can give you one little example that uh, one rule says that uh, all the items should be kept inside or under the cart. So imagine, and I had this experience before, so when I sell hot dogs on a hot dog cart and I put a box of pretzels on the top of the cart, that's a violation. And I got a ticket for that before. So you can imagine that the rules are too old this way. Right. New York is a different city than it was in the 80s. It's Indeed. And I, I really hope that our elected officials will take a look at that and like see, yeah, that's that's been a while since we took a look at these rules and regulations. Let's revisit them again. Right. That's great. Well, uh, Mohammed. Oh, sorry, Ori. No, I, I think I'm, I'm the, the last thing before we go. I'm just curious to know just the size of the street vendor community, thinking of, you know, all the different types of vendors we see, is there any estimates on just how large the community is? Well, uh, the estimate is about 20,000 street vendors in mm -hmm. New York City selling different products wow. and all over the five boroughs. It's a small city. It's a small city and yeah. it got 20,000 20, people. You see that? 20,000 right. people selling in the streets. Wow. Well, um, Mohammed, this is great. Uh, if people are listening and they want to get involved, they want to help out, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, sure. So first you can visit our website and it will be so informative to you. So it's www.streetvendor.org and you can follow up on social media. Just type Street Vendor Project. Luckily, not really luckily, like I'll just say we are the only organization that works for street vendors in New York City. So you cannot get us confused with any other organization. You can just type Street Vendor Project and you will find us all over the social media and you're going to find our website. So please uh, try to help us, try to support street vendors, your local vendor. And if you really want to get involved, just like our page in social media and you will learn a lot about what's happening in the city. That's great. Thank you so much, Mohammed. Uh, it's so it's so interesting and so important to hear about uh, something that affects lots of people in New York. 
Um, so uh, we're going to take a little break. Next up, we have uh, um, national news, and we're going to hear about uh, uh, Mick Mulvaney replacing John Kelly, uh, as well as uh, a couple um, uh, uh, triumphs and failures for uh, um, state governments. Um, don't go away.
Hey, welcome back to Objection to the Rule. Uh, I'm uh, Violet. We've got Ori on the phone. Uh, and we'll get into some national news. Uh, this week, we learned that White House Chief of Staff John Kelly, who is sometimes regarded as the adult in the room for Trump's White House, will be leaving at the start of 2019. Uh, former White House Budget Director Mick Mulvaney is tapped to replace him as the acting Chief of Staff. And according to CNBC, Mulvaney himself requested the acting title, as well as a clear exit, if need be. Uh, so, questions about this. Uh, Kelly is not the only one on the chopping block as Trump shakes things up uh, before his 2020 campaign. That's not uncommon, but what he was brought in to restore or maybe to create order among a largely inexperienced staff. Uh, so, uh, Ori, I'm curious, what's our verdict on uh, Kelly's role, ultimately, and on his leaving? Well, I think that, you know, the, the, the issues about his role or how he's performed are evident in all of the chaotic things that have really happened under his being at the helm as chief of staff. I think it's interesting that you know, we know that he was kind of under on the radar for a long time and that this really isn't surprising news. Um, you know, so I, I think we, we've come to know that this has been a very much an, an administration about shakeup, an administration about, you know, kind of changing the guard if things aren't working or if, you know, the president does not think that things are being done in the way that he feels they should be done. Right. Um, so I, I'm, I guess it's not surprising at all that he's going. Um, I think it, it's following all of the same ways that other people from this administration have gone. They may have been under the radar for a little bit. He might get some praise at some point. Then there's going to be some sort of scandal, and then he's going to be the <laughs> worst person ever. Yeah. And then he's, like, out the door, you know? Right, yeah. There's a great cartoon, I guess it's probably a New Yorker cartoon, where it's sort of an uh, assembly line for Trump's administration. First, he's sort of shaking your hand, that, and he's all happy, and then he's unhappy, and the, uh, the newcomer is deeply unhappy. And then the last frame is he's just stabbing him in the back and uh, greeting the, new, uh, the newest newcomer to the administration. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is, I don't know what that says. <laughs> Probably not anything good. Um, yeah. So uh, midterm shakeups uh, not uncommon in themselves, but uh, it's unusual for there to be so few people who want to step in. Uh, Chris Christie publicly removed his name this week, saying that he did not want to be considered by Trump for the position. Uh, so what's going on there? What are what are people saying if they're saying I don't even want to be considered for this prominent position in the administration? I think it's pretty obvious what people are saying. I mean, if it's a job that somebody wants, you're going to have competition for it. When you have people, and Chris Christie wasn't the only person that removed himself from consideration. I believe there was another person. But um, I think when you have people that don't want to fill these very, what were highly regarded roles, very esteemed roles within the administration, it says something about their feelings about their security in that role. 
Um, again, going back to the turnover that's happened in this administration. So maybe it's just not a feeling that this is the right role for anyone who wants to have longevity in their political career. Uh, right. That could be a possibility. Maybe people don't want to be aligned with the president and his administration. That's a possibility. But it could just be that the role could be so much, so demanding, so much to handle with how much transition there's been and all of the different activities that maybe it's just not desirable. Despite right. Despite the fact, you know, of who's in the office. Right. Technically demanding probably as well as psychologically demanding. You know, you're dealing with a uh, unpredictable boss, essentially, and uh, with a staff who sort of moves according to his whims. Uh, another consideration might be um, a concern about all of the investigations going on around the Trump administration and the questions of corruption uh, that are plaguing so many of the um, members, you know, uh, the head of the um, environmental uh, groups recently was forced out, uh, Due to questions of his spending, we're we're getting a lot of um, questions into how these people are uh, are performing their roles and ethics violations, and uh, it may be that people who have ambitions, as you were saying, don't want to touch this uh, particular uh, administration. Um, yeah. Uh, meanwhile, in Wisconsin. Uh, Governor Scott Walker signed his state lawmakers' lame duck bills into law uh, as one of his last moves as uh, governor. Um, laws that will, among other things, curb early voting, limit incoming Democratic Governor Tony Evers' power to pass laws and make appointments, and prevent the state from withdrawing from a lawsuit challenging the Affordable Care Act. Uh, and critics of Walker have said that he's going against the will of the people in this state, um, and I'm wondering, uh, could this backfire on his political ambitions? You know, he's sort of being a hardliner. He's going with his state, uh, his state uh, legislators position over the incoming Democrat and blocking him. But I wonder if this is truly the will of the people. Will this go against uh, Walker? Ultimately? Well, I don't know what. Scott Walker's future ambitions are. I don't know if he wants to go for federal office or something like that. I know, um, but I, I do think that it's an interesting move, and it seems very much against what people would want, considering the turnout of that election. So I would be interested to see if they continue to vote more democratically in the future and maybe force more changeovers in their state legislature um, in the upcoming elections. I think that's something to watch out for. Right. Um, and that would indicate whether or not it's really a turning of the tide of the people or, you know, or, or if it's just wanting to kind of referendum on, on Trump, which is what a lot of people are saying with, with some of these shift in the election. Um, but I, I, as far as what it could do with Scott Walker, I don't, I don't know. Um, I think it's really, it, it seems kind of low brow of an act to limit powers of the incoming administration just because you didn't win. But right. 
it's, uh, you know, a lot of the charges are that uh, in Wisconsin and Michigan, um, where similar things are happening, that Republican legislatures are acting as sore losers. You know, they won't accept that they will be transferring power. So they're trying to avoid it. Um, well, and I think it's, you know, using the law to benefit your causes. I think it's, you know, these laws are framed not to protect the interests of, you know, the general population, but to protect interests a lot of times of the people who are funding these campaigns. Right. Um, there's a lot of power in that ability to legislate, and there have been some landmark legislation pieces that have um, only been able to get through because of a certain administration being in power, um, whether that's the Republicans or the Democrats. So the control of that power is of the essence of, of any party that has it. Um, I'd really, again, like to see what happens at the polls. Right. And, you know, if that's the case, it also begs the question, in a purple state like Wisconsin, is it just going to flip, you know, uh, every two years or every four years when there's an election year? Is the underdog going to take power and just change as much as they possibly can? Um, Probably. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, another question is... Uh, you know, these new rules are based on Republicans not wanting to cede control to a new Democratic uh, governor. Could this, if these rules uh, prove to uh, be longstanding, could, um, could it backfire for Republicans? Could, um, uh, if a Democratic uh, legislature wins office in Wisconsin in the future, is that going to spell trouble for a Republican who's wanting to re reverse some, uh, you know, labor protections and stuff like that? Oh, I think it absolutely could. I mean, I think you're going to, you know, use those tools if they're available. And I, I would imagine that the, the Democrats would be itching to gain control of the legislature so that they could do just that, to put forth more, um, you know, measures that are underneath their, their ideology. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't imagine that it would be any different under, under the Democrats. They might not have put this law forward, um, but I can't even say that for certain. Right, right. Uh, so, um, meanwhile in New York, uh, two major new budgets came up this week. First, uh, the MTA board approved a $17 billion budget uh, that may include the sixth fare hike since 2009, uh, which will be up to $3 for MetroCard rides. The board threatened to massively restructure the MTA as a fix for its intense bureaucracy, uh, as well as dubious budgeting. You know, the board doesn't approve of a budget that will raise uh, MetroCard rates uh, as a fix for uh, deficits. Um, so first of all, you know, you got to ask every time the Metro card goes up, what's that going to mean for New Yorkers? Uh, and what's that going to, uh, what new challenges might that bring up? Well, anytime you raise the prices of something so vital as the subway, it, it's going to affect people. You know, that's a dollar for every four subway rides, I believe it's two seventy five. Right. So, you know, it's, it's going to affect people and it's, especially people that are lower income or, you know, have to use the subway regularly um, for commuting purposes and things like that, which many New Yorkers obviously do. 
Um, I'm interested. I have not looked at this budget. You know, the MTA having a $17 billion budget is just astounding to me. That's yeah. bigger than, like, many um, municipalities. Right. Um, and so the idea that there's so much spending within the MTA to warrant such uh, an exorbitant amount of money, I yeah. just, I'm just so... Uh, it's, that's the is that that's the annual budget. That's just crazy. But regardless, I'm interested to look at what the what is being spent. Um, I'm particularly interested. The the MTA has a whole police force, which is that you know how much of that is the budget, and and is that a necessary expense? Right. Um, so what are I, I feel like there's a lot of there's a lot of referendum that unfortunately does not happen on the MTA because it's an authority and it's not an entity of the city or the state. So it's, it, it, normally we would have referendum over the budget process. Unfortunately, with the MTA, we do not. But we're subject to, you know, its spending as a part of our tax structure, um, which is, it, 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 we have to look at that as well. So those are, the, I mean, that's the impact. It's not only going to be a, you know, it's going to be that direct impact of the fare hike, but it's going to be the direct the impact of this budget and the amount of money that the city and the state is asked to fund and, and by proxy we're asked to fund. Right. Yeah, you know, you got to wonder if a, a major restructuring of the MTA isn't in order uh, after all this. Uh, it's a huge budget, and if it doesn't even cover what it needs to cover without raising the MetroCard fares, then, uh, yeah, is it the police force? Is there some uh, weird um, budgetary uh, spending going on that's not clearly a part of the NTA's running? Meanwhile, we've got all of these repairs uh, going on and not sufficient infrastructure to cover it. So it's really, uh, it's a lot that's uh, not answered here and. um it may uh, it may require some uh, reorganizing in order to fix it. Um, another major uh, uh, budget that came out this uh, week was uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio announced a 10-year plan that would fix uh, $24 billion worth of problems in uh, New York City Housing Authority system. Uh, the plan includes selling air rights around NYCHA buildings, developing on NYCHA land uh, and fixing the services infrastructure and maintenance to keep buildings running better. You know, it would, uh, the proposal would include um, having maintenance actually work on nights and weekends. Right now it's a Monday through Friday system, which doesn't come close to addressing NYCHA residents' needs. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, there's, they're getting some support from affordable housing um, advocates, but they're also getting some flack for selling the air rights and for allowing for development of uh, market rate housing to happen on um, on NYCHA soil. So um, I'm curious, like, how do we think that's going to even out? What's that going to mean for, uh, for, for NYCHA residents or for affordable housing uh, in New York? So I, I'm interested to know if they're going to... Are, does this mean, like, the destruction of any current NYCHA properties, or is this just land surrounding them? Um, because I feel like those could be two different things. Yeah, that's a good point. I, from what I read, it seemed like it was uh, NYCHA land that wasn't currently being used. 
I'm not sure if there's a because mixed rate like, thing. Yeah, I feel like there's there's look these these properties are some of the largest, um, or I, I can't say some of the largest, but these properties are very large. If there's unused land, I feel like if the city could somehow capitalize off of that to put more money to make the quality of life better for the people that are living in the NYCHA properties, that would be amazing. If that's how this would actually go down is the question. I think that when we put this into developer hands, there's the risk of the benefits that were proposed actually not coming true. So, you know, is will the NYCHA residents benefit? Will that mean that their repairs will get done? They'll standard of living will be better. They'll get access to more resources. Um, I think if those things could be assured and there's not going to be displacement of people, um, then, you know, then figure out how to get this money into the system. I think that might be a, a viable way. Air rights, these are the, you know, these are some of the largest buildings. So are they talking about putting up, you know, five more floors on top of the NYCHA property and building a secondary elevator for luxury apartments. Yeah, the poor door um, again, right? Exactly, which, you know, they've tried it. So I, I don't think anything like that necessarily would be good for the community because, you know, we don't, we don't want to further perpetuate the idea of the tale of two cities right in people's purview, especially. I'm sorry, the uh, perpetuate what? The idea of the tale, they can continue to perpetuate the tale of two cities, uh -huh. you know. Right. Right. Well, once upon a time, we had a uh, um, a governor and a mayor who were saying that they were going to end the tale of two cities. I wonder what happened to that. Um, Ooh, once upon a time. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine a situation where um, public property and public systems are given over to private interests, and that ends well for the people the systems are trying to serve. You know, we have uh, privatized prisons, uh, privatized schools and universities, and that almost always means that uh, people are getting the short shrift. The writing has been on the wall when you put it in that perspective, especially, you know, the privatization of public, uh, public institutions. It really does not bode well. Right. Yeah, um, so uh, we're going to hear a little bit about international news coming up next. Uh, meanwhile, we'll uh, have some music. We've got uh, Anna Hiju coming up uh, on Radio Free Brooklyn. Don't go away. Pero leí la letra pequeña del texto Como un arquitecto construyendo cada efecto Correcto, incorrecto, se aprende todo al respecto Saber que algunas personas quieren el daño Subir peldaño toma tiempo, toma año Con mi peluche mirando lo cotidiano Dibujos transformaban y el invierno en gran verano Papá me regaló bajo mi insistencia Juego 
partir la secuencia Pero en el patio hicieron la competencia Fue cuando sentí mi primera impotencia 1970 y 1970 y 1970 que miraba la salida la parada militar de paso monótono colores policromo los uniformes de poco tono de tono mi cuestionamiento la voz hizo no no mi primera rima que sonó y me enroló mi búsqueda no fue para mi cosa de escenario fue algo necesario y que marcaba ya mi fallo así que tú hablas más de lo necesario fue cuando entendí que todos quieren ser corsario 1970 y 1970 y 1970 Tus monólogos, tus discursos incoloros No ves que no estamos solos Millones de polo a polo Al son de un solo coro Marcharemos con el tono Con la convicción Que basta de robo Tu estado de control, tu trono podrido de oro Tu política y tu riqueza Y tu tesoro, no La hora sonó, la hora sonó No permitiremos más, más Tu doctrina del shock La hora sonó, la hora sonó la hora sonó, la hora sonina del shop. La hora sonó, la hora sonina del shop. La hora sonó, la hora sonó. No hay países, solo corporaciones. ¿Quién tiene más, más, más acciones? Tosos, gordos, poderosos. Decisiones por muy pocos. Constitución, pinochetista. Derecho, pues de hilo fascista. Golpista, disfrazado de un indulto. Elitista, cae la gota, cae la bolsa, la toma, se toma la máquina, rota la calle, no calle la calle, se raya la calle, no calle de base. No ves que no estamos solos Millones de polo a polo Al son de un solo coro Marcharemos con el tono Con la convicción Que basta de robo Tu estado de control Tu trono podrido de oro Tu política y tu riqueza Y tu tesoro no La hora sonó, la hora sonó No permitiremos más, más
una, una mejor educación. Objection to the rule. We're going to have some international news up next. But first, uh, did you know that uh, Radio Free Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit uh, whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community? And we promote media literacy, education, and free expression. Uh, We rely primarily on donations. So as you get into your giving season, remember your friends at RFB. it's easy to donate. You can make a one-time donation or a monthly pledge at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Uh, and every cent is going to help us to continue to stay on the air. Um, so RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Uh, you'll feel good about it and feel good about yourself. So um, some uh, potentially positive news for human rights advocates this week. The U.S. Senate voted to end our support for the Saudi-led attacks on Yemen uh, and it was actually a bipartisan move um, in- and included a condemnation of Saudi Arabia's attack on dissident journalist Jamal Khashoggi. It uh, included a uh, personalized uh, condemnation against uh, the leader Mohammed bin Salman. And um, our senators were specifically uh, targeting uh, Saudi Arabia's role as a U.S. ally, saying that allies can't just do whatever they want and uh, stay our allies. It doesn't uh, give you clemency to uh, to go on the attack against uh, human rights uh, in your country or beyond. So um, it's the word bipartisan, uh, Ori, is almost, a, uh, almost unheard of these days in Washington. You know, we've become so split that it feels like uh, senators will do anything to... Uh, to undercut uh, those of the other party. So what's the significance of this, uh, this um, you know, statement uh, being a bipartisan move? So it's interesting because I've, I've interviewed a lot of politicians over the past year, and when something gets this quote-unquote bipartisan stamp of approval, um, I feel like it's meant to mean that this legislation or this action, you know, they've gone above and beyond to to make it happen. It it, it speaks to some Herculean effort almost. Um, at least that's what I, the impression that I get they're trying to convey. Um, you know, it, it does say a lot that to go across the aisle, so to speak, takes so much effort 
in this political climate. Uh, I do think it is, you know, commendable that this action was taken. Um, and it seems to be in, you know, kind of in not, I guess, defiance, but in kind of a, a divergence from the line of the White House. Um, failing to really condemn these actions and, and speaking uh, on this this topic really in any detail. So, you know, it, it is a it, it does say something about what the government will come together on, what people will cross the aisle over, um, and and that that is an important thing to note. I would imagine. Right, that's a good point. You know the um, the. Um you know, condemnation of Saudi Arabia included a uh, rebuke to President Trump. You know, Trump has so far refused to speak out against uh, Mohammed bin Salman, Saudi's leader, um, for uh, perpetuating the attack against um, Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, and um, this uh, this action uh, in Congress included... Um, a uh, historic first use of Congress's war powers to challenge uh, U.S. military involvement in other countries. So I'm wondering, uh, not only is it a, a reach across the aisle, but it's also um, a move by Republican senators uh, speaking out in a tangible way against Trump. So even if this uh, if this um, movement doesn't pass uh, the House or the Senate, uh, both houses, um, it it's a move against Trump, and I'm wondering if this is an indication that Trump might see more serious resistance from Republicans moving forward in the next year or so. I think it's a possibility. You know, I think that there were, especially in legislators, there were Republicans that do not necessarily follow a Trump hard line um, that have been critical of the president, and certainly there are going to be Democrats. Um, newly elected and also, you know, those that have been, you know, legacy as a part of the legislature that are going to hopefully be more, um, I shouldn't say hopefully, that are going to be more vocal. Um, I, I do think that you're going to not necessarily see more visible condemnation or vocal condemnation, but I think you might see a lot more behind-the-scenes fixing right. of some of the things that come from the White House. Right. Yeah. It sounds like we might see a little bit more of that uh, going on, especially as the uh, House transitions in the next year. So uh, that's about all the time we have for Objection to the Rule this week. Thanks so much, Ori, for uh, coming on the phone. Um, and thanks again to Mohammed for uh, for coming on earlier this, uh, this hour, uh, speaking about the street vendor project. Uh, next up, we have What is Love with Sasha Sugar, and uh, we'll see you next week for more from Objection to the Rule, um, and uh, see you soon. Mil novecientos setenta y mil novecientos setenta y mil novecientos setenta.